This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on a few issues that are especially topical, including contact tracing, immunisation and thromboembolism. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these topics, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, and Emma Scott, Section Editor, who will all work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start off with Emma. Emma, routine work must continue during the pandemic, and one aspect of that is immunisation. So can you tell us how is the current pandemic affecting routine immunisation? Yes, this is one area we've touched on in the best practice topic on managing coexisting conditions. Um, A lot of attention is, of course, being given to the development of an effective vaccine for COVID-19, but it's very important that routine immunisation against vaccine-preventable non-COVID-19 diseases continues where that's feasible. The World Health Organisation states that immunisation is a core health service that should be prioritised and safeguarded during the current pandemic as it reduces morbidity and mortality, avoiding outbreaks of vaccine-preventable disease and reducing pressure on already overwhelmed health services. However, responses to the current pandemic might have resulted in disruption to immunisation clinics and also people may have missed appointments due to having to self-isolate or just being anxious about having a face-to-face healthcare appointment. So there may be increased numbers of susceptible individuals and therefore an increased chance of outbreaks of other diseases like measles. So provision of routine immunisation needs to continue as much as possible in the pandemic, but factors such as healthcare system capacity and the need for physical distancing will have an effect on this. So there might be a need to prioritise some vulnerable groups. Okay, thanks, Emma. And could you tell us which immunisations should be prioritised? Yes, uh, in the UK, the guidelines say that where there is extra pressure on services, then vulnerable patients in high risk groups should be prioritised. So this would include those who are immunocompromised or have conditions that put them at higher risk, but also time sensitive vaccines such as the routine childhood immunisations for babies and preschool aged children and vaccines for pregnant women. Uh, In the UK, school age immunisation programmes are currently suspended. More broadly, the World Health Organization recommend that vulnerable populations at higher risk should be prioritized for vaccination against outbreak-prone diseases such as polio, diphtheria, uh, yellow fever. Uh, They also stress that wherever immunization services have been reduced or suspended during this pandemic, that they're resumed as soon as possible to close immunity gaps. And maintaining high immunization rates and reducing the number of people susceptible to vaccine-preventable diseases is vital, especially in the current global situation. Okay, thanks, Emma. Let's move on to Abigail and medications. And another routine aspect of work is medications that require regular monitoring, such as warfarin, and this can pose a particular challenge during the pandemic. Uh, Abigail, what advice is there for managing patients who need anticoagulation? 
NHS England have published some guidelines on the management of patients who require anticoagulation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the guidelines cover patients who have a new requirement for anticoagulation, as well as those who are already established on anticoagulation. So they remind us that initiating anticoagulation should be done by clinicians with expertise in this area. And direct acting oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, should be initiated whenever possible because much less monitoring is needed. Um, And a maximum of 28 days supply of medication should be prescribed to avoid disrupting the supply chain. In some cases, of course, a DOAC won't be suitable or the patient will have an absolute indication for warfarin, for example, if they have a mechanical heart valve. So if that's the case or if warfarin Um, cannot be safely started and monitored, an alternative is to prescribe a low molecular weight heparin um, and to teach the patient or a family member how to administer the injection. The other options that clinicians have, depending on local availability, is for teaching patients to self-monitor their INR using self-test kits. Now, if a patient is already taking warfarin, the indication should be reviewed to establish whether anticoagulation is still necessary. And if it is, clinicians could consider whether the patients can switch to a DOAC or whether the patient could start self-monitoring their INR. So if a patient is taking warfarin already, the indication should be reviewed to establish whether anticoagulation is still necessary. Um, If it is, clinicians should consider whether patients can switch to a DOAC or whether the patient can self-monitor their INR. If patients are suitable candidates and consent to switching, then they can be switched over from warfarin to DOAX. It's important to say in this group as well, patients with mechanical heart valves should always continue on warfarin. And patients who are stable on warfarin can be offered extended INR testing with an interval of up to 12 weeks. If a patient is hospitalised for any reason, including a diagnosis of COVID-19, their anticoagulation may need to be switched over. And there's a lot more information on how to manage those patients in the BMJ best practice coronavirus disease topic. Thanks, uh, Abigail. It's really clear and helpful. And another issue is the mental health of healthcare workers. And looking after mental health and psychological well-being is essential for healthcare workers during the pandemic. So what symptoms should healthcare workers look out for in themselves and in their colleagues? This week I've been reviewing advice from the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention um, on things that healthcare workers and first responders can do to safeguard their own mental health. Um, And they emphasise that healthcare workers are susceptible to both secondary traumatic stress and to burnout, um, and that they can learn the symptoms to look out for in themselves and in others. So secondary traumatic stress is a stress reaction that occurs after witnessing other people's traumatic experiences. And the symptoms include excessive worry or fear about something bad happening, being easily startled, feeling on guard all of the time, physical signs of stress. So, for example, heart racing, um, having nightmares or recurrent thoughts about the traumatic situation and the the feeling that other people's trauma is, is yours and belongs to you. The other symptoms to watch for are those of burnout and that they're slightly different. So those include sadness, depression or apathy, feeling very easily frustrated or irritable or blaming others. Um, Alternatively, some people feel indifferent, disconnected or isolated from other people. 
they might struggle to maintain their personal hygiene or feel just really tired, exhausted, overwhelmed. Some people feel like failures or that nothing they can do can help or they're not doing their job very job very well or they feel like they need alcohol or drugs to cope. Okay, thank you. And, and what practical advice is out there on how to look after mental health? Well, the, f- the first thing that the CDC recommend is that remember it's normal to feel under pressure in this situation. It's highly unusual. And caring for your mental health and psychosocial well-being is as important as caring for your physical health. So they recommend following general measures to reduce stress. Um, And these are making sure you take breaks from reading, watching or listening to news stories, um, taking care of yourself, for example, through meditating, eating well-balanced meals, getting regular exercise and plenty of sleep, um, avoiding alcohol and drugs and having enough rest between shifts and making sure you spend time doing activities you enjoy and connecting with family and friends, even if that has to be um, virtually. They recommend that people should work in teams wherever possible and limit the amount of time working alone. Um, And they also recommend developing a buddy system. So this is where two partners support each other and sort of monitor each other's stress and workload and and safety. They say it's really important to allow times for yourself and your family to recover from helping with the pandemic. And it's really important to ask for help if you feel unable to care for patients or for people at home like you did before. Sometimes it can be hard to see those things in yourself. So it's important to be alert to symptoms in colleagues as well. Um, If you do notice signs of burnout or secondary traumatic stress, they recommend offering the opportunity to talk to the colleague involved, but not forcing them to do so. You can signpost them to useful resources, encourage them to maintain self-care and also escalate concerns if necessary. And it's really important for everyone to find out what support is available in their organisation. Okay, thanks, Abigail. Um, Thank you. That's very helpful. Now let's move on to Matt and contact tracing. Matt, is there any new information or guidance for doctors about the government's new contact tracing plans? Can you tell us? There's some information coming out of the Department of Health and Public Health England about this. There are letters published on the Public Health England websites that were cascaded to local directors of public health and they discuss this plan to have a new contact tracing service operational across the UK later this month. The most recent one from the 4th of May outlines in very broad terms how this might work at different levels across the country. So at the national level there's the development of the expanded testing programme and a new contact tracing service and this includes the NHS COVID-19 app Uh, And this is the test, track and trace programme that's currently being trialled on the Isle of Wight, where people who download the app can report any symptoms of COVID-19 and are then notified if they've been in contact with anyone else who's had symptoms. Then at the regional level, the focus is on recruiting and mobilising a large workforce of health professionals and call handlers Uh, and this is across the UK, including the devolved nations, and the Department of Health has stated it needs 18,000 additional contact tracers to carry out this work. While at the local level, the message is that public health teams and local authorities need to identify their local contact tracing priorities, and that efforts are focused on the most complex outbreaks of COVID-19, and especially in care homes.
Okay, thank you. And what are the implications of all this for clinical practice? At the moment, it's hard to say that there doesn't seem to be much guidance yet about how this contact tracing service might affect frontline clinicians, for example, hospital doctors or, or GPs. But much of the recent guidance for clinicians, for example, on PPE, takes on board the fact that the UK is in a period of sustained community transmission of COVID-19. So when this situation hopefully changes for the better, which that's the aim of the contact tracing programme, of course, we can certainly expect to see the clinical guidelines change again. Okay, thank you very much, um, Matt and Abigail and Emma, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast and sign in to BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.